While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. My first source for Saltine Nicucci is a book entitled Sketches of Travel in the Old and New World. It's a vanity pressing. The author intended the printed copies to be distributed among friends and consists of letters written by George Williams as he traveled. He travels through Cuba, the U.S., Canada, and Europe, and his journeys are chronicled in this neat little 470-page volume. Williams is from Georgia, specifically from Sauti Nicucci, and very often he compares what he sees to the beauty of the valley in which he's made his home. God bless the man who invented the PDF, and doubly bless the man who invented the search feature. I read as much of this book as I could, but eventually I just needed to start searching. At one point, Williams compares a valley in Cuba to the natural beauty of Nicucci, and he compares some waterfalls in Scotland to the falls around his home. This is where the search feature comes in. Those two references are 91 pages apart, and it's a pretty thick, dense 91 pages. But the best information comes when he returns to the United States and fills the last 60 pages with tales of his home. This is Moving Through Georgia, Episode 11, Sauti Nicucci. He tells the story of how the valley got its name, and you might have heard this before. Nicucci, also known as the Evening Star, was the only daughter of a Cherokee chief who fell in love with a warrior of the rival Choctaw Nation. She slipped out of the village one night, and the two left to make a life for themselves, but they were pursued by the Cherokee, who searched the entire area for the two. Sauti, who was that son of a Choctaw chief, had built a small home for the couple on Mount Yona. They had water and food in abundance, and they could see any search parties approaching from a distance. But not everything can last, and eventually the two were discovered by a Cherokee hunting party. The Cherokee warriors performed a dance around Sauti as the sun dropped behind the horizon and the evening star came out. Then they threw Sauti off the precipice. Nikuchi soon broke away from her father and threw herself off the cliff to follow. They were buried together at a spot where the Sauti and Nikuchi valleys join under an earthwork mound. Maybe you've seen that mound. More on that later. Williams goes on to describe the area, including Tallulah and Tekoa, but the most interesting part of his book involves the history of the Cherokee in the area. Nikuchi was an important town, and there are various stories that describe huge earthworks that were built to defend it. In the stories, those who claim to have seen these walls and ramparts claim that the Cherokee themselves don't even know where they came from, and they're incapable of such a feat of engineering. Often they're attributed to Spanish soldiers left behind to search for gold, but of course no trace of these battlements remains today. Sometimes these earthworks in Nicucci are tied to the stone walls on Fort Mountain, but they have no relation to each other and they're pretty far from each other. He also talks about a farmer finding a stone-lined grave, but he's not completely clear if it's around or in or even near the Nicucci Mound. And he says that the grave included tomahawks, conch shells, and most curiously to him, copper. Either this grave or another one he talks about includes a peace pipe that would allow seven people to smoke out of the same bowl. 
Later, he explains that he's tunneling through the mound, which was apparently near his home, looking for the burial place for the doomed Native Americans that gave the area its name, Sati and Nikuchi. I have discussed this in previous podcasts, but it still makes a good introduction. In 1540, Hernando de Soto was traveling through Georgia and the surrounding areas searching for gold mines, and there are stories that he found them and left Spanish soldiers to supervise the digging. James Mooney, the author of Myths of the Cherokee, explains that de Soto entered a town called Guaxal, where he and his men were welcomed, the men being lodged in the chief's house on top of a high, artificially made hill. Mooney specifically says that this hill is the Nikuchi Mound, a few miles northwest of Clarksville. Maybe, but some other researchers who have looked closely at DeSoto's accounts of his trip note that he describes the hill with a word in Spanish that normally wouldn't apply to an artificial earthwork. But either way, after going through some various spellings and pronunciations, the Nikuchi Valley is listed on maps going back to 1775. From here on in, I'm going to be strongly referencing The Nikuchi Mound in Georgia, a 1918 book funded by the Museum of the American Indian in New York, and it's available online for free. In this, the mound is described as being 17 feet high, but they note that the ground around had been lowered by repeated plowing and planting, and that the top of the actual mound had been leveled for a gazebo and a garden, so the original dimensions could be very different. This book reports on an archaeological excavation carried out by the Museum of the American Indian and the Smithsonian Institution. They explain that the owner granted them permission to dig under the condition that any gold found would remain the landowner's property. They dug for one summer, but for some reason didn't obtain permission to return. The archaeologists describe the mound as being the site of a house within a town. A traveler in 1778 wrote about the character of Cherokee towns and describes the council house or the townhouse as a round building atop an artificial mound of earth. Apparently, even the Cherokee residents couldn't adequately explain why their towns were built on this plan. They attributed it to legends and tradition. Mooney adds that these townhouses were located near streams because the ceremonial dancing often involved ritual bathing in nearby water. The Smithsonian archaeologists begin their history of the area with a discovery in 1870 when someone plowing the area found some stone slabs about 30 feet west of the mound. The slabs covered a stone-lined grave, Two more lined graves were later found nearby. The central grave contained a skeleton from a body that had been laid out in the grave, while the other two contained a jumble of skeletons that had apparently been placed inside kind of haphazardly. This find was investigated by Charles Jones, a prominent Georgia historian and somewhat of a character from the 19th century. Jones says that the central grave was occupied by a single person whose worn teeth indicated advanced age. This person was buried with a copper cutting tool and the remains of some matting that may have been the containing basket, and which may have shown signs of dying. DeSoto did report that Native Americans in Georgia were seen to use copper axes. 
There were also two shells, obviously from the coast, which had been adapted to drinking or water-carrying vessels, some more stone axes, some beads, and possibly the remains of copper rods that may have been used to burn holes in pearls so they may be strung. The documentation of the expedition has some photographs of the objects found in the grave, but a footnote in the source says that the objects were once held in a museum in New York, but were eventually sold or donated to the Smithsonian. Only one object from this first investigation of the mound can be located, a clay pipe bowl, and that bowl is in the National Museum of the American Indian. You can find it on their website. It can be confusing if you're looking at objects found at the Sautinikuchi Mound. Different museums will show objects found by different expeditions in the same exhibit. My point here is that if you're looking for a good, thoroughly documented account of objects found at the mound, it's this Smithsonian expedition that did the best scientific work. So in 1915, the Smithsonian archaeologists got down to digging. In one summer, they uncovered more graves, one containing an example of painted pottery that may have been intended to resemble an animal. It does have stubby legs and a tail, but what animal it is remains a mystery. This pottery vessel closely resembles some other vessels from Tennessee, so it's possible that it came to the Nicucci Valley through trade. More conch shells were found, and more impressions in the clay indicating that some woven material once lay there before eroding away. Several copper celts were found, and that's a tool that could be used as an axe, a hoe, or some other uses, as well as several arrow points and more evidence of textiles. One body had the evidence of strung pearls around it. The structure of the graves is interesting. The archaeologists suggest that the mound may have taken many years to reach its height, and graves found at different depths document the changes in the local civilization. Some objects, specifically copper objects, are only found at the lower depths, where the first burials would lay. At the top of the mound, they found evidence of a fire pit that actually consisted of several smaller pits. As the mound grew, different pits were dug in generally the same area, but each pit showed a bright red in the clay, indicating that it had been exposed to great heat. This fits the general description of a Cherokee town of the time, as the townhouse would have a sacred fire burning in the center of the hearth. One of the pits found around the mound contained remains of pottery, and may have been the place where the pottery was fired. The Smithsonian report gives extensive details of 75 burials, the bodies and bones of which were really too badly decomposed to be measured well or to be too much use for study. However, they did conclude that seven were adolescents and four were children. Forty-eight were buried with their heads facing east. Most were flexed or bent as they were laid to rest. Only four were lying fully extended. Near the top were four graves that contained objects manufactured by Europeans. Some glass beads, two glass bottles, and some copper buttons. There were also some lead buttons, lead-molded bullets, and clay pipes of non-Native American manufacture. And at the top of the mound, but not in a grave, was found an 8 real Spanish coin dated 1808. It had a hole punched in the top to make it into a pendant. The Smithsonian's report is available from a few places online, including the Smithsonian website, and lists every discovery of the 1915 expedition in detail. If you have any interest in learning about what was found in the mound, that's the place to look.
One last point, but first I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast based mostly on Northeast Georgia history. If you want to send us a question, a comment, a complaint, send it to movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. And if you want to help the podcast a little bit, you could leave us a nice review or a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That'll get the podcast out to more people. George Williams, the fellow who wrote the book I started with, does go on on one point that I completely agree with. Anyone who has read an Uncle Scrooge comic knows that in the heat of a gold rush, the only one sure to get rich is the guy selling the shovels. As the Georgia gold rush descended on the Williams family, young George considered digging up his property to look for gold, and at some point his father walks him through the cornfield and points out that the corn is a sure, steady income. He says this is gold that is reliable and that will come back every year and provide an income. He definitely has the right idea. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an a deputy gal to Georgia. That's all.